So yeah, this is, I guess this would be a green light episode 22 B because uh, there's a lot to talk about, you know, all that we hit this morning, um, in 22 a, but the Rooney rule needs its own pod. And this is what I'm going to try to do. What could go wrong? Just a white dude talking about the Rooney rule for an hour. This should be, uh, should be easy. Really easy. Thanks for uh, tuning in. This is my last warning. If you don't like hearing me talk about race or you want me to stick to sports, and I don't assume that most of my listeners are like that, then just log the off. I still love you. Well, maybe I don't. But this is your last warning. Okay, you're about to cross. It's about to get real political. All right, you're about to walk through the door. Hurry up, X out of it. If you don't want to hear about the Rooney rule. Okay, here we go. mentioned Stefanski, uh, Kevin Stefanski, who is now the, he joins the illustrious ranks of Cleveland Browns football coaches. He's the 10th coach for Cleveland since 99, the sixth in eight years. Uh, golly, former Vikings OC, I'll mention in a second, I'll go through his track record. He has paid his dues, uh, even for one of these young looking coaches, um, these young offensive minds, he's Part of this group that, you know, was Kingsbury, McVeigh, Shanahan. There's a theme here, and we're talking about that in depth in a minute. Read the Rooney rule. But um, he has really, I mean, God, he, he's 37, but he's the longest tenured coach in Minnesota. He's bounced around positionally in the building, so he's got experience everywhere. His dad, for whatever it's worth, longtime NBA GM, uh, 37 years old again, and I felt like the Browns were not going to let him get away twice. I think they'd end up regretting it. They passed on him last year for Kitchens. This year, I think they might have had a little bit of worry in their head that if we let him walk, hire McDaniels, and McDaniels, there were rumblings that they wouldn't give um, him the reins organizationally the way Josh wanted to run things um, exhaustively that Stefanski was going to get hired somewhere else next year. And you probably, if he ends up being a great coach, never live that down because you are already a meme organizationally from a standpoint of selecting players and coaches. So um, a lot of people scratching their heads over Salah and Stefanski going head-to-head on Saturday, one getting their ass kicked, uh, and the one that did, on the field at least, um, got the job. Also, a lot of people wondering who was the one responsible for the offensive uptick in Minnesota and the development of Kirk Cousins. Was it actually uh, Stefanski or was it Kubiak? You know, Zimmer privately, I think, has, has, has mentioned Kubiak being one of the best things that ever happened to him as a head coach. So maybe part of Zimmer is like, you know, I got my guy here anyways. Good for Kevin, but we'll be okay. I've got Kubiak 
um, who's kind of in that consultant role, which is a weird deal. Um, but again, he's been all over the place. Uh, he, he only spent one year outside of Minnesota as the uh, football operations guy at Penn. And then in the early 2000s, ended up in, in, in Minneapolis as assistant to the head coach, assistant quarterback coach, tight end coach, running back coach, quarterback coach, interim OC, and then OC. He made Kirk a statistically top 10 guy across the board this year. Helped him win in the playoffs in the Superdome, uh, which is a big, big win for somebody we never thought had that in him. Uh, and all this while having four out of your five offensive linemen be kind of subpar. Um, now they have two really good receivers, and you got Dalvin Cook, but they did a lot to put Band-Aids on, uh, on some weak weaknesses up there. Used the play-action pass, great. Got the run game going. Um, yeah, I, I thought he did a good job. If he was the one pulling the strings, I liked the hire uh, more than I've liked the last few Browns hires, whatever that's worth. I, when, a, when a coach gets hired, I like to go read players' quotes. I want to know what they're saying about him because really it's not – you know. I, most players, and I, I'm sorry, I'm going to cuss a little bit in this uh, in this segment. I have barely cussed to this point in this pod, but most players aren't going to shit on a guy that just got a job, go out of their way to do that, especially if he's out of the building. It's like, why take a pop shot? But you can read between the lines, and a lot of times, if I don't like coach that just got hired, you ask me about him, I'm going to be like, yeah, he's a good coach, and I'm happy for him. Good for him. You know, I'm not going to go in depth and unsolicited sing the praises of that coach. And that's what I heard a lot when I uh, hopped online today and looked at quotes from guys uh, in Minnesota. You know, Kyle Rudolph, um, his quote, he says the word command multiple times, command. And that's big for a head coach. Can you command? Can you have a presence in the room? Not, not every great football mind has command. And that's a worry with a young OC type walking into a room full of vets that maybe there's a guy that's one or two years younger than you. Uh, maybe, you know, in McVeigh's case, when he came in, there were older players than him. How will that command translate? He also mentioned the ability to, quote, relate to guys, and he has a way of showing every player how they can help his team, this team win. Um, that's a really good thing. I, I think being able to relate is something that you have to worry about with a young coach. Um, and he's going to walk into a locker room. In an NFL locker room, you cannot fool. You've got to be able to relate. You've got to be, be able to be honest, emotionally intelligent. And that came across in the presser today a little bit. And we'll get into that in a minute. But Dalvin Cook quotes, Exactly, positive influence in my life since I came to Minnesota believed in me as a person and a player. So he's mentioning the personal influence outside of football. That's a theme with Dalvin Cook when he mentions Kevin Stefanski, which means that, hey, listen, he doesn't have to mention off the field stuff. He mentioned it. That means he's invested in his players off the field, like who they are, who they are when they go home, they leave the building. That resonates with guys, and it resonates with Dalvin. You can tell. Thielen says it's cool to see a guy who's just grinded, Everybody says about this guy who works his ass off, which I kind of hate it for him because rightfully with the topic we're about to tackle in the Rooney rule, most pro people probably assume that he's just like, um, he's had an easy road. 
he has paid his dues. Um, and by all accounts, he works his ass off. Uh, Thielen said he's a grinder, quote, leader. He mentioned his demeanor. He's paid his dues. That was the theme with Thielen. Irv Smith just got in the league, quote, detailed in his work, wanted things done a certain way, and doing things a certain way, knowing what you want, having a plan. Some of these coaches don't have a plan. He's being intentional, and being intentional is a great quality, especially as a head coach. Players want to know why we're doing things. Why? For some coaches, that's the most dangerous, scary question in the world because they don't know why. It sounds like he's a guy, if you ask him why, he tells you exactly why. Um, Brad Childress, he's got a belief in what he's doing. He's resolute. Talks about how prepared he is and how he leaves no stone unturned. Again, detail and work, you know, resolute, believes in what he's doing because you got to believe what you're doing. Uh, players can sniff that. They can sniff bullshit, and they can sniff a guy who doesn't really know what he's talking about or what he wants. And again, the presser, since we've become – it's the press conference Olympics here. Uh, he used the point card analogy, whatever you think of that. Uh, he came across as a guy who was emotionally intelligent. He didn't look meek, but he spoke softly, more softly than the last two guys. I think that's fine. You don't have to be up there like giving a Rudy speech or you know huffing and puffing. Uh, that works too, sure, but you risk a lot doing that. Guys want to be talked to like grown men, and they want to be talked to on their level. And he seems like a guy who knows what he wants. Um, and, and one thing I liked he, he mentioned was he said, your personality is encouraged, but your production, I think, is, is, is uh, it's non-negotiable, something to that effect. So I think he, he, he addressed that right off the bat that I know we've got some personalities here. I'm fine with you having a big personality, but you have to produce. And that's true. That, that's anywhere in the NFL. You know, if you're outspoken and I was outspoken in my career, I had a personality. But when I'm not playing well, I tried to shut the fuck up. I tried. Um, you know, he, he talked about Baker, quote unquote, accurate as they come. That was his Baker commentary. He seems to believe in Baker because why would you take the, the job knowing that you're probably going to get another job down the line here if you don't like Baker? He probably sees him as an asset. And I do think. You can get Baker back to what he was in the second half of last year. It's there. Once you show me it, it's there. Um, he mentioned hiring more minority coaches, and that is something that we're going to talk about. That's great. Um, he denies having to turn in his weekly game plans, which I know Browns are very analytics-focused right now, and it seems like they're kind of babysitting their head coach. There were some rumors that he'd have to turn into his in, in his game plan. Kind of unheard of. Uh, he denies that. So – the big question is, you know, was it Kubiak or was it Stefanski? We'll find out. Um, I know that Zimmer had the comments that I mentioned earlier about Kubiak having a huge impact. Um, but he did a lot with that group, with Kirk. Um, you know, we talked about all the statistical categories that Kirk Cousins lived in the top five to ten this year, even the top five in a lot of them. Um, that had to do with somebody. We'll see who it was. Um, and with all those O-line issues we mentioned, covered a lot of warts. Um, also, random observation, guy looks like Joe Flacco. Yeah? Yeah. Um, but what we're really here to talk about is, and I've referred to it as the elephant in the room, and when I tweeted that it was the elephant in the room, somebody actually got mad at me and said, you're not meeting racism head on, calling it the elephant in the room. 
I was like, Jesus, dude. Like, all I talk about is this shit. I, I get it from both sides. Um, like, what do you think the elephant in the room is? Didn't know I was going to do a segment this week, did you? And part of the reason we waited to do this segment was, you know, I did it last, I tried to do this segment once last week, and I liked it, but I got a couple really good calls from people that illuminated some different angles for me, and I was like, I got to do this over and more completely. Also, it kind of gets lost in the, um, in the noise of everybody talking about the Rooney Rule last week. I think the, the longer we can talk about it, the better. Um, so obviously the, the elephant in the room is that another year where you got a bunch of openings and you got no black coaches being hired. Um, of course, last week it was big news because you know Joe Judge was a hire that people freaked out about. He's seemingly, a, if you listen to First Take or some shows that, you know, and Stephen A's monologue was great, you know, if you listened, you thought he was a wide receivers coach in New England. He's a special teams coordinator. There is a difference there. I think any of these examples, it's fine to talk about this and use them as examples of the holes in the hiring process. And that doesn't mean we're shitting on the coaches being hired. They they all have paid dues, Some, most of them. Um, and they're all certainly great coaches. Uh, in their own rights, and we'll see as head coaches, because um, it's a crapshoot. You never know. But the fact remains that this Rooney rule was put into to practice for a reason, and it doesn't seem to be getting it done. That's not a hot take. You know, a little bit of background. Rooney rule was enacted in like 2002 on the heels of like Dungy and Green's firings uh, as head coaches that seemed to be a little hasty. Um, and the fact of the matter was that before the Rooney rule was enacted, and by the way, the rule, for those of you who've been living under a rock, um, sets a guideline that you have to interview for a head coaching position, one coach of color, um, which hasn't gotten it done. And before that rule, there were only six coaches of color somehow uh, in the rich history of the NFL, uh, which the pages of that, that, that lengthy book are authored by black men in uniform. Uh, but for whatever reason, we all know why, there were only six uh, minority coaches from the early 70s um, when black players started really becoming prevalent um, presences in locker rooms um, and then became the majority on the field. There were only six, um, and that doesn't make any sense because as I mentioned about 68% of players are non-white, uh, and the vast majority are African-American men. Um, and as a player, my perspective is that for a long time uh, in locker rooms, I took for granted because I was in the best melting pot in the country as an NFL locker room. Guys from different backgrounds, socioeconomic, ethnic, you know, different personalities, values, and we, we speak freely with each other. We have great conversations, enriching relationships, so I take for granted when I was a young player that, well, yeah, the, the coaches are probably the same way. And then as I got older, started talking to some folks, um, especially my veteran friends who were maybe trying to get into coaching, guys that I came in a league with um, that might have matriculated into the coaching ranks. I started to pick up on things as I'm, as I'm playing more. I start noticing that you know, when I was young, I would see, yeah, there's black coaches, there's there's minority coaches, but I didn't pay attention to what they were doing, what they were coaching. Now, I'm not talking about head coach or not. I'm talking about which 
positions they were coaching and, and whatnot, and I'll get into how relevant that is. Um, as I got older, I became more keen to it. Um, and then, you know, recently it's just been a big topic of conversation. And I do think that most people, and there's, there's nothing wrong with not knowing about this if you weren't a player, because even some of these young players, as I mentioned, when I was young, I wasn't real keen on it. As fans, maybe you look at the NFL as this melting pot, and you, and you should, from a locker room standpoint, it, it's great that way, but you take for granted the coaching process and the hiring process, and, and um, I don't blame you for not knowing, but there, there's an excuse for not knowing. There's no excuse, though, for being annoyed that people are talking about it. And I know that some of my followers or my uh, listeners are probably thinking, oh, he's doing the race thing. Well, you can just log the fuck off because um, this is absolutely a relevant topic and there's plenty of smoke. You know, where, there, where there's smoke, there's fire. There's an overwhelming amount of smoke here. Um, so... Maybe it's good news this week that they're actually talking about it. It dominated the news cycle, and um, relatively speaking, Rooney and Mara had comments, but we need action, right? Um, Joe Judge has already hired four out of five coaches being minorities, including the assistant head coach and special teams coach, so that's great. But since the rule came into effect, it hadn't gotten it done. There's been highs and lows, like a high being the you know, uptick to a watermark year in 2011 where eight coaches – um, of color were head coaches in the NFL, but that's 25% of league, not, not 70. 70% is the representation uh, when it comes to the players on the field. 25% might have been a record high, but that shows you how far we have to go. And, you know, 2015, there were seven African-American GMs. The lows, of course, 2012, 15 firings of coaches and GMs, not a single black dude got hired. I mean, researchers at major universities are telling you explicitly it's twice as hard to move up in the ranks uh, as a black head coach or a black coach um, as it is for a white coach. There is data, empirical data, that suggests that. I don't even think suggests is is is. A, there's no suggestion. It's true. Uh, there's, you know, I, I'll read you this: the 2019 NFL Racial and Gender Report Card issued by the Institute for Diversity and Ethics in Sports, TIDES is the acronym, at the University of Central Florida, stated that racial hiring in the NFL is the worst it's been in 15 years. How is that possible? While the NFL can boast 70% players of color in 19, it can only point to 12.5% of head coaches of color, 6.3% people of color in the GM principal in charge category, and 12.8% people of color at VPs and above. Per the Tides report, the NFL received grades of D+, F, and D+, in each of the respective areas. In contrast, the report stated that 33.6% of NFL assistant coaches are of color. These statistics bear out the glass ceiling faced by coaches and front office executives of color as they move up the ladder. That was some interesting reading right there. And for me, what it pointed out, and it only mentioned negative, this Tide study had some positive grades for the NFL in certain areas, 
But the closer you got to the money and the, the, the decision making, the grades got lower. So it, like, it's not helping anybody if your diversity report card says you're an A-plus for the players on the field or for wide receivers, coaches. But the closer you get the money, there's a protective force that seems to be weighing that grade scale down. And I'll get into that. So I, I said, I want to do a segment on this. You know, it's topical. I'm certainly not going to shy away from it. You walk a thin line as a white player, a white guy with a podcast, thinking you know shit about the Rooney Rule, whether you know about the problem or the solution, because I never experienced the problem. I can read the data, though. I can read articles. I can look at the anecdotal evidence. For me, though, I had to talk to people to understand it. I talked to my peers. I talked to um, probably well five, seven African-American coaches, front office folks. Um, Talk to a few white coaches, you know. And listen, if you're sitting here skeptical, thanks for continuing to watch. Hopefully you'll find this illuminating. Again, don't don't feel bad if you don't know about this stuff. It's not a shouldn't feel guilty because you didn't know. Um I talked to a bunch of guys that I trust or that people I know trust, and they would have every like it would be in their best interest to exaggerate this stuff. But the the stats back it up. Like it's a reality. And let me just tell you, nobody's lying here because I, I know these guys or have mutual friends that vouch for these guys being 100% honest all the time. And I can tell you in talking to these black coaches and front office guys, there is a hopelessness. That's what I, what I came away with was that here are the problems. I don't know how you fix it. A lot of them. And a lot of feeling defeated. Even one coach, like, I was like, what's the solution? He was like, don't buy the product. I was like, damn, dude. I mean, it's depressing. A couple of quotes stuck out to me. One was, one of the coaches said, and I quote, racism is alive and well in the NFL. Until you get minority owners, you won't see change. Another coach called this whole thing an eerie, eerie force that's undeniably in existence. And I believe him. Hearing the anecdotes, the stats, it's hard not to. You know, people, these, these guys I talked to mentioned coaching unions. You know, there, there is no coaches union like there's a players union. I don't know if that would do anything. They mentioned back channel agents. A lot of these deals are done halfway through the year. Um, you know, these agents who are big time are not necessarily looking out for the interest of black coaches regularly. And they are the puppet masters behind the scenes when it comes to this hiring process. A lot of these hirings are done before the Rooney rule even has a chance to do its work. Like halfway through the season, I'm pretty sure David Tepper knew that Matt Rule, whether he's the right guy or not, was his guy before he fired Ron Rivera. And a lot of times, you talk about tampering with players and whatnot, a lot of times there's, there's conversations going on before this stuff even gets going. Guys talked about Fritz Pollard Alliance. Um, Fritz Pollard is a group that's supposed to be like the transparency police. 
the validity police in this hiring process and you know on a lot of fronts in the NFL in general um, when it comes to standing up for <coughs> equality and equitable practices in this case in the hiring process guys are excited about the direction there's been um, you know some new developments with that group that they're excited about but what I what I took away were there were three main factors all right number one protection of the quarterback room number two nepotism and the coaching fraternity and number three the owner class so those are the three main factors um, <clears throat> that are causing you to see the disparity um, number one with protecting the quarterback room I mean first I should mention quarterback room is one of the best avenues to get to the finish line, that being head coaching position. And there is an intentional and unintentional force that seems to be going on across the league that's keeping black folks out of that room. There's only two black OCs. So OCs climb the ladder. Quarterback coaches climb the ladder. There's only two of them in the entire uh, league who are African-American. You have one O-line coach, they sometimes get head, head jobs. Um, one black O-line coach. There's 10 defensive coordinators, but that trend, and we'll talk about that in a minute, has kind of gone by the wayside. So I was told a story by one of these coaches about Steve McNair. Steve McNair obviously took the Titans to the Super Bowl and lost, came up just short. Mike Jones' play is up for uh, one of the best moments in NFL history uh, right now. But McNair was a bit of a work in, in progress. He wasn't just a world beater right off the bat. Alcorn State, you know, he, he was a pro project a little bit, turned into being one of the most productive guys in the league and a big part of why they were in the Super Bowl. And he had a quarterback coach. And his quarterback coach had a lot to do with his development. Um, Craig Johnson was his name. Now, after he coached in the Super Bowl, that shit fell apart in a couple years. After that, Craig Johnson never saw a quarterback room again. He hasn't coached quarterbacks since. I think right now he's like coaching running backs in New York. Um, what's up with that? Like that one of the coaches I talked to pointed to that immediately. He's like, "That's insane. If you coach a guy to the Super Bowl." and have a lot to do with his development at this at this point at this juncture in 2019 2020 sorry you're getting a head job at some point or at least you're going to be an OC but i mentioned the OC numbers Doug Williams one of the best um quarterbacks the last 30 years um or he had one of the best runs with the with uh, the hogs and in Washington and an iconic black quarterback <clears throat> he has a son trying to get him into coaching, calling everybody in the league. Barely anybody even wants to let him in the door. And by the way, I've, I've played for a bunch of coaches who had kids coaching in, in the NFL. And they place them, they protect them, they bring them along. And some of them are really good coaches. There are some great coaching families and we'll get into the nepotism and the coaching fraternity thing in a minute. 
but it's not hard to get your your son a job if you played in the league, uh, it, you know, organizationally. If you go back to your organization, you say, I, I just want to place my son in quality control. Like quality control, trust me, <laughs> it's not hard. He tried to get his son just in the door. Only a couple teams even answered the phone. The ones that did, he was like, yeah, I want him to, like, can you place him in the quarterback room so he can learn? It's Doug Williams' son. Nah. The only guy that, that hired him or, or answered the phone and, and was unfazed by the request was Sean Payton. <clears throat> you know, and that's that guarding of that room. Those are two anecdotes. There's a hundred of them. Even like GMs, there's a position under GM called DPP. There's only three, four black G- DPPs in the league. That's the OC of GM. So there, there's a guarding at that level in the front office. Um, and there's a guarding in the coaching, on the coaching floor, that side of, of the building as well. Even on defense, uh, the, the coaches I spoke to mentioned the lack of black linebacker coaches. On defense, if there's one position that you could most likely get a promotion um, from its linebacker coach, they deal with the entire defense from the the, the first level to the third level. And um, they're mostly white. Even in college, like I mentioned, I asked, I was like, well, how do, do does this force funnel black coaches into – position groups that have ceilings like in college and guys mentioned that sometimes a, a carrot will get dangled it might be more money something else hey yeah go coach the wideouts or you know there's the guarding at every level and the nepotism and the coaching fraternity doesn't help that i mentioned that i'm not anti coaches kids i'm not anti famous people's kids my dad happens to be famous as fuck my dad happened to be a hall of famer in the nfl but there's a difference between NFL players coming from a football family and NFL coaches. And again, there are some good coaching families. I'm not anti. But when you're a player, like I had 14 sacks in the ACC my senior year. There's a reason I got drafted. I went out and did it on the field. My brother, the great guard at at Oregon, ton of physical talent and ability, looks nothing like my dad. He's the milkman's kid. Like he's a foot taller and 40 pounds, 60 pounds. He's insanely talented. You could be a, a player's son. It's different than being a coach's son. And I identify with some really good coaches. I, I get how, how much of a struggle it must be to like deal with that shadow thing. And I'm certainly not trying to be discount, discounting that, but there is nepotism. Um, Scott Turner is an example. So. Scott Turner is now the OC in Washington, but fast forward or rewind back. Ron Rivera got his start in coaching from Norv Turner in San Diego. When Norv Turner, when Ron wanted Norv Turner to come to Carolina, he said, or he wanted his son placed in Carolina and he wanted him placed in the quarterback room. He was so intensely loyal to his son and Ron felt he owed Norv a favor because that's how a lot of this works. All these coaches are serving old masters. (coughs) Always looking out for whoever got their start. And coaches, by the way, hypocritically, they always get, like if you're a bad coach somewhere and you could be a disaster, you'll still 
get another chance. Players, not as much. Um, so Ron forced Scott into the quarterback room with Cam Newton, your franchise. It seemed like a relationship thing. So much so that I think Norv's nephew was currently in the quarterback's room and he forced him out for his son. Now, what happens when Ron gets the job in Washington? Intensely loyal. Um, and he could end up being an awesome OC, but you know how some people look at it. It's like, this doesn't seem right. It seems like people calling in favors. And that's kind of the way things go with coaches. Um, and where we are, we're, we're, we're at nepotism. Mike, hey, Mike Zimmer's son just got a DC job. I don't know if he's a good coach or not, but if he is, it's fucked up because he's going to get judged super hard because of this trend of any coach giving any old coach a job or looking out for them just because they're related. Um, another thing that coaches mentioned when I talked to him was there's no standardized test. Like, if you're a college player, like I mentioned, you can compare players, their production in college, the whole nine yards to each other. They're playing at the same level. There's something you can go off of. With coaching, it's a trade. I'm not discounting coaches. Like Coaches work hard as shit. They work harder than the players. Their hours are crazy. I know ones that sleep on couches and, and, and are at the building 24 hours a day. Like Don't come home to their families. It's actually <coughs> sick. It's actually ironic. They don't come home to their families, but then they look out for them professionally. Um, so they work really hard. I'm not down on them, but they look out for each other. And the, the accountability factor is not the same. They bring their friends along. Um, so there's no, there's no standardized like coaches school. You can't judge. Like even when you judge a coach on his, on his performance, it's hard to know because there's players involved. Like Joe Brady just got hired. I don't know. I don't know if it's because everybody was so good at LSU, like we just mentioned. Um, guys like Shanahan and McVay who have paid their dues like, and they're really good coaches. They turned out awesome. But coaching is a trade. So whoever taught these guys, before they knew football, they didn't know it. It's not like they were born to coach. I guess black coaches are asking, why can't we get the same access to that training from the bottom up? And that comes through a lot of these, uh, these, this pipeline, the quarterback room, offensive coordinators, <coughs> these young minds. Um, another coach mentioned, it's like the JUCO non-qualifier thing. I coached in college, he said. Um, I got a lot of non-qualifiers. A lot of them had post-grad degrees like six, seven years later. Were they dumb when they were non-qualifiers? No, they weren't taught how to do school yet. Once you're taught how to do it, the sky's the limit. Unless you're dumb. And if you're dumb, you're not going to be a good student. If you're dumb, you're not going to be a good coach. But give guys an opportunity is all. And finally, this was a disturbing thing that one of the coaches mentioned, which was, I feel like if you let black coaches in, who do the 68% non-white players listen to? Who do they follow? That's the fear. That some, not all white coaches, say to myself, like, well, if I let former players in, especially former players who have clout and respect, and who look like the players in the locker room, then where do I fit in as a coach who might have been working my ass off for 30 years? That sounds like racism if that's what's going on. Um, 
And again, players don't care. I've never cared who my quarterback was. I was a minority in a defensive line room my entire career. Don't care. Love my teammates. We just want to win. Why isn't it the same when it comes to the coaching pipeline? And finally, the owner class. Most presidents and owners are not like players socially. That was a direct quote from one of the front office guys I talked to. <clears throat> they hang out with certain people that look like them. They want to be comfortable. In fact, they, you know, one guy mentioned that coaches kind of give the, or this uh, owners kind of give this vibe off that I paid all this fucking money. I, you're going to tell me I, I got to be uncomfortable? I bought this expensive toy and you're going to tell me how to use it? So good luck telling owners. Um, how to spend their money, who to hire. They can always hide behind this subjectiveness of the the, the process. Subjectivity, sorry. Um, it's, uh, it's an inexact science. So I don't know how you do the owner thing. Like there's a cultural difference there when all your owners are two minority owners in Pagula and Khan, but neither are black men. Um. And then there's the partnership and, and fans angle. Like owners, a lot of them probably think, according to the coaches I spoke to, that listen, the the demo I'm after, the fan base might not like it if I have a black face leading my organization. And what about certain partnerships? Like it's not like the partners necessarily don't like black people. It's like well, my demo kind of likes white people. It's not even about not liking black people. It's about we want to appeal to the people that like our team. And that's ding, 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 racism in hiring. Um, you know, I thought to myself, well, you need more former players to be owners. They would get it. Well, part of that's generational, but the, the last player owner we had was Jerry Richardson. And that didn't go over so well, did it? Um, also, with, with, with owners, they either die or they pass it on to their family. And we just can't sit around forever waiting on that to happen, uh, waiting for something to change. So even black coaches and GMs were brought up as part of the solution. Like, we need something out of them was kind of the... Um, was kind of the, the, the sentiment I heard from some of these coaches that, that I talked to. Even one coach seemed upset at some, you know. He mentioned that no GMs, no black GMs, other than the guy in Miami who just hired B-Flow and the guy who interviewed Ray Rhodes back in the day, I can't remember who it was, have even interviewed a black head coach. There's just been two. And uh, I wonder how hard that must be once you've broken in as a black coach because I guess you can look at it one of two ways. You can look at it either, one, I'm in the door and I'm going to do exactly what I want to do and I don't care who it pisses off. And that sounds idealistic. But I could also imagine that if you work so hard your whole career to get there, you not only want to be successful, but you also want to be able to bring more people along. And bringing more people along for some coaches might, might, might appear like, hey, I got to play the game a little bit. Me coaching a long time and being successful is going to be better for black coaches than than forcefully hiring my friends who are the right guys for the job in a lot of cases. So I'm not saying just like as favors hiring friends, hiring the right people, who, whatever they look like. Um, <clears throat> I can, I, that must be a kind of a mind fuck. One guy mentioned that Tony Dungy, the first 
14 coaches he, he, he hired were white. And maybe that was a case of, I'm going to get a foundation under me. I'm going to get some success, and then I'm going to bring people along. And he did with Tomlin and Caldwell, and he made them coordinators. And that's a big key that kept getting mentioned. If you, make your, if you, if you hire black coordinators, they will eventually be black head coaches. And that was the case with Tomlin and Caldwell. And whatever you think of Marvin Lewis, I'm not a big Marvin Lewis fan, but he did bring Hugh Jackson along. He made him a coordinator. And that turned out to be a bad idea. Uh, but as as far as hiring him in Cleveland, three and thirty six. But that's what happens. You make them coordinators. You make guys coordinators. They're gonna get opportunities. And black coaches and and, and GMs were mentioned here as well. And I'm not. I'm not. Again, this isn't me mentioning. It, it's guys I talked to. But it was. It's not all bad. Like Bruce Arians kept getting brought up. You know, he kept coming up. Three black coordinators um, that he's hired. 11 of, 10, of 30 of his coaches are minorities. He's got two women on staff. He's not guarding the quarterback room. He's got Byron Leftwich in there who hopefully eventually, if he's, if he's qualified, will get a head coaching job. Um, so solutions, right? Seems like a systemic issue, you know, even in college from the bottom up. There's the guarding factor of the quarterback rooms, the coaching pipeline, coordinator positions. A guy mentioned that I talked to, and I like this, he, he said, yeah, there's studies, but an independent institution needs to look at the lowest levels from the bottom up, not what's happening at the head coaching hiring process level. Look at it at the lowest levels. Um, and the, the data, you need data and you need access. So it can't just be data. Um, that'll only tell part of the story. You need the access, and good luck getting that in college, right? Um, for it to be academic, truly academic. So I hear. Um, possibly player councils. That was my naive ass brainstorm idea. White podcast guy, former player. I'm like, yeah, why don't you just we'll have some former players form like, you know, councils in each organization mandated by the league. Simple. If there's six of them, have four of them be black dudes and two of them be white dudes. Make it statistically representative of the makeup of the league and have them counsel the owners on the hiring process. Owners have fire, final say, but there's a transparency factor there. Those players can kind of police that process. Plus, players know how to, they know who the coaches are better than the owners. Um, but it was pointed out to me because of the way the owners are. They, they, they get to vote on basically everything. You think they're going to vote on more regulations for them? That was naive of me. I think here's a big thing. Since the Rooney rule, there's been nine DCs of color. Unfortunately, it's kind of come at the same time, and there's been 13 hires since the Rooney rule um, of head coaches of color. Again, nine DCs. So you're thinking, oh, that, that's a way we can get in this thing. And there's 10 DCs in the league right now. So you think, there's the opportunity. No, because the boy wonder thing, the young offensive mind thing, kind of coincided with that watermark year and this, you know, this last five, seven years. They've gone away from DCs. Um, so it's a copycat league. I'm not even saying everybody who's hiring these young, young white faces 
that are young guru offensive minds, and I'm not denying that some of these guys are great minds. I'm saying that when the pool is all white and it's a copycat league and every owner's like, what are they doing over here? Over oh, well, there hiring from that bucket. Right, let me go look in the bucket. Well, there's no black guys. Why is there no black guys? Because we're guarding these avenues, these, um, these pipelines. And so defensive coordinator has stopped being a hot thing. Um, and there's a lot of black DCs in the league. I think you got to recognize the pipeline, meet it, he- meet it head on. I think the, the target keeps moving, as we mentioned, with the defensive coaches. But I think one big problem for me, looking at it, and the Rooney Rule was amended one time in 2018 um, to include a rule where, and Deuce Staley, who's a really good coach in Philly, and I know well, he was, I think part of the genesis of, of this amendment was the Eagles hired Doug, and it turned out to be a great hire, but they checked off the, the Rooney Rule box, and that's another complaint that guys have mentioned talking to us, the way we talk about it. The media talks about it this way. They hire, they, you know, a team interviews a, a black uh, coach, and the media is like, and that will suffice the Rooney Rule. Well, they suffice the Rooney Rule with Deuce, and Deuce is in the building. So think about that. If I go, if I go hire a white head coach, and I'm like, yeah, but we, we interviewed Deuce. Deuce, it was a good interview, right? Well, Deuce isn't going to say it was bullshit. If it was, and I'm not saying it was, but like Deuce isn't going to come say it was bullshit. He wants a future with the team that he's currently in the building on. So they have to interview a coach, not only a minority coach, but outside the building. And I looked at that letter that included that information, and um, the letter at the end is signed by like a, a council for like, I don't know, diversity or whatever. Like, there's two councils that that sign this letter, and we're dealing with the Rooney Rule. So the council weighs in on ways to improve it, and that's great. Everybody's probably awesome on this committee, but everybody's pretty much white on the committee. And so, like, my thing is, if this is um, not a white guy problem, it's a white guy problem from a standpoint of you got to support and 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 uh, be an ally and try to help out, but you can't be the architect. You need you need black folks in the meeting. That's about black folks. And of course, I'm a white guy doing a podcast here, but I have a fucking podcast, so I have to talk about it. And also, I didn't think of this stuff. I asked my peers. We're actually dealing with it. So I would hope the next time they send out a letter like that, that there's a lot more black people weighing in on that process. Um, you know, I think the coaching school could be a, a cool twist. I don't know how that would work, but, you know, more of a standardization of the process that we can evaluate more accurately and compare coach to coach. It's not an exact science. I understand that. But try to standardize it a little bit more. One idea I heard that I love was a symposium idea. One of these coaches mentioned, wouldn't it be great if all the owners had to devote, you know, a couple days, a week, a retreat, a symposium like to do with the rookies, where these owners have to come in and spend a week with all the black coaches in the league. Get to know them on a personal level. Ask them how the, the process can be improved. If they have a gripe, if the owners have a gripe with, hey, 
It's really not, you know, this situation, let me be more transparent. This is what happened in this hiring process. Hey, this is how you interview better. If it's an inter like we know what it is, but it takes away the plausible deniability. Get everybody in the same room. The NFL should front that. That should be something they do every year until this thing is solved. Give the black coaches a voice, a direct voice to the ownership, and the ownership a direct voice to the black coaches because um, communication is the only way. If you really want to make a difference as an owner, you have to communicate with these, these guys and not just the guys in your building who you answer to or who answer to you more directly, guys that can speak freely. And I had a radical idea, and some of you guys are going to think I'm, I don't know what you're going to think. Um, but next time there's an, an owner opening, give first right of refusal to a black guy. The world's not going to blow up. You'll survive if there's one black owner in the, uh, in the NFL, a league that's made up of 70% pretty much black dudes. Um, I don't think it's that radical, honestly. First right of refusal. And the least should be paying for all these, these solutions, except for the, uh, the, the, the study, because that, if you pay for a study, you get what you want out of it. Um, but the bottom line is, and this is a, you know, I, I, I plucked this tweet from Bomani Jones. Um, Who's a buddy of mine? I don't think he'll 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 mind me taking his tweet. It's a good take. Since World War II, there have been 18 black head coaches. 13 got three full seasons. Ten made the playoffs. Four appeared in the Super Bowl, and two won the Super Bowl. So it's not like black coaches can't coach. Seem to be pretty good at it. Um, I don't know. I think the bottom line is you look at the NFL. What does the NFL love to pre present, project? And I've been a part of it. Listen, I'm proud of being the man of the year. I'm proud of doing community work, but they love to project, you know, a an image of this melting pot is a reflection of the best of America, right? And on the field, it is. I play with guys who came from places that they never would, two guys would have never been sitting together having a conversation if it weren't for football. Um, my godson I would not be in his life if it's not for football. My best buddy that I played with in college and I probably never would have been sitting together where I grew up, where he grew up, if it wasn't for sharing a locker room, which is the most beautiful, awesome thing in football is the locker room. It's, it's, it's special, and that's the one thing you miss. That part is a melting pot. That part is like America. But if you look at the commercials and the marketing, the NFL and the sponsors, every time you turn on the TV, it's a Pepsi commercial or something, and everybody in the commercial is 
white people, black people, Asian people, Hispanic people. Everybody's happy. They're enjoying each other. It's America, right? It's just like the rest of uh, our idealistic idea of what America is. So you look at the field, you look at the commercials, melting pot. You look in the front office, you look at the ownership, you look at the coaching positions that have upward mobility, not like the melting pot. And so I guess the NFL has to decide, you know, are we really an idealistic slice of America or is it just like every other business? Um, And I actually think the NFL has an opportunity in everything it does to lead from the front, which is why I've tried to work with the NFL. Like instead of just being like, I don't want to work with the NFL because you have like, this is center stage for diversity. The league is 70% non-white. Um, but the coaching staff, the front offices don't reflect that. And so in that way, I mentioned the grade scale for minority hiring practices. The closer you get to the money, decision-making, the power, the grades get worse for the NFL. And so they, they need to do something about that. They need to do it soon. I can't snap my fingers and think of a cool solution. I mentioned some that these guys um, share with me as possible solutions. But I think right now we're treating the symptom and not the sickness when we just hammer away at, you know, the, the month before a coach is hired. This is a pipeline thing. This is a systemic thing. It's going to take time, but it's good we're talking about it. And uh, anybody that gets uncomfortable because we're talking about it, like, just, fuck, you listen this far. I hope you feel like you wasted a ton of time. Um, but it wasn't a waste of time for me learning about it. I thought I knew. It's like peeling back an onion. And um, I appreciate those coaches and those front office guys for sharing that stuff with me. I know when you get a call from a white guy and you're like, hey, I want to talk about the Rooney rule. So, I mean, that, that probably, your first reaction is probably like, what do you know about this shit, dude? It's really hard. What do you want me to tell you? Well, they told me a lot, and I appreciate it, and hopefully I was informative for y'all um, listening and watching who are likely mostly white. And again, not your fault. You don't think about this stuff a lot, but here we are. Um, so thanks for watching. Um, thanks for listening to episode 22. Um, keep an eye out for our live watch this weekend. It'll be a lot more fun than that segment, which was a downer, tough to do with a hangover. Um, but I'm, I'm a grinder. I'm like Kevin Stefanski. So, thanks again. Thanks for listening. It was, it, was a, it was a heavy subject, and y'all hung in there for a while if you did. So, I'll catch you this weekend. Actually, I'll catch you Saturday morning. More green light. Live watch this weekend. Uh, take care. <laughs>